Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, because hope has a name. I invite you to take your scriptures, if you would, and turn back to the Isaiah 9 passage. We're going to concentrate just on the last two verses this morning in the time we have left in verses 6 and 7. You are probably well aware of the birth announcements and the gender reveals are big things nowadays. A few days ago at Faith Christian School, we had a surprise baby shower um, for three of our teachers, Laura Cabana, uh, Kalisa Herzon, and Daniel O'Brien's wife. And uh, so I thought about them, and then you add to that my wife's D group, uh, Shamira Baldwin, and then Kristen Adams is having a child. Amanda Lardy, of course, is having a child. Now, the last two haven't revealed what the gender is, but right now the score is boys four zero girls. So I don't know. It could be a sweep, 6-0. I don't know yet. We'll have to wait and see. But it's always, and I remember back to my own children, it's always exciting to announce the birth of a new child, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's great stuff. In Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, if you can see it, is a birth announcement of sorts. It's a gender reveal. It's, it's, but it's different than any other type of announcement in this way, that it was a royal announcement. I, I, during my college years, I lived in London, England with my family. My dad was there on business. And uh, there was a lot of things always in the royal uh, family and so forth and so on. And so I looked it up, and there's actually royal protocol Uh, When a royal child is born into this world, and the very top of the list is the queen mother has to be notified first. I mean, that is actually the number one thing. Um, They are born at, the royal children are born at the Lido Wing, the Lindo Wing, I should say, at St. Mary's Hospital. 2019, I think it was the Duke and Duchess of Sussex that uh, recently had a, a royal child. Um, and then it follows that the doctor signs the birth certificate, and he also assigned, assigns the royal announcement. The baby, after the doctor signs it, signs it, is cleaned up and then taken right over directly the day of the birth to Buckingham Palace, and where the queen mother gets to see the baby right away. And then while that's happening, they take the royal birth announcement, put it on a large placard, set it on an easel in the square outside of Buckingham Palace, And the royal town crier comes and proclaims to all the citizens of London that there has been a royal child that is born. And so they always say about the name, and then they say the gender, and the town crier makes sure that everyone knows how important this little baby is. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 is God's royal birth announcement and gender reveal through the prophet Isaiah. Um, In America... The birth etiquette or birth announcement etiquette is as follows. Um, You have up to six months after the baby is born to send out announcements to everyone. Um, God outdid that by a lot. Um, He sent out the birth announcement of Jesus, his royal son, not after his birth, but before his birth. In fact, 700 years before his birth. Uh, uh, that's what Isaiah did. Isaiah put the birth announcement of Jesus the Christ on paper. 
And he put it on paper for everyone to see for seven centuries before Jesus would ever be born. And then when Jesus actually was born, God sent the angelic town crier out into the streets of Bethlehem and mostly to the shepherds that were abiding in their fields to officially announce that the king of Israel had been born in Bethlehem. You think about all of that, and you have to, I would hope, like I would today, uh, this week, I said, why? Why would God announce it twice? Why would he announce the birth of Jesus 700 years before he would ever come? And why did he go about announcing it again on the day that he arrived in this world? And I think the answer to that question can be given to us in one word, hope. In Isaiah's day, as he writes chapter 9, You're well aware of by now through this little series that Assyria was the upcoming and rising superpower of its day. Eventually, Syria would wipe out the northern kingdom. He would take most of their citizens captive and they would become enslaved. When Jesus was actually born and the angelic town crier made the announcement... A very similar situation was taking first in first century Palestine. The Romans had taken them over and they were under a great oppression and their lives were miserable. And the reason why in both instances that God gave an announcement was that his people Israel needed hope. They needed a future hope. They needed to know, in Isaiah's words, that there was a light that would come into their darkness, that what they were going through and that what they were suffering and the pain that they were enduring would not be forever, that this wasn't the last word, the last say in their life, that they're actually from God would be something more. See, the meaning of Christmas is that there is hope in your hurt. There is salvation in your suffering there is a future beyond your failures and that's that the light at the end of the tunnel is jesus you probably have heard the joke from new yorkers that the definition of depression is that the light at the end of the tunnel is new jersey and that doesn't speak well of new people from new jersey and uh but i get what they're trying to say And, and and let me tell you this you may be here this morning and you may say pastor walker i've been in this dark tunnel Uh, for a long time, a really long time. And if you're that person this morning, whether you're watching or you're here in person, you would be in need of some Christmas hope. Now, understandably, we are not surrounded by Assyrians and we are not surrounded by Romans. And that is not the battle. That's not the enemy that we face today. But instead, you're asking questions along this line. When will my illness be over? And you face chronic problems. You've been to the doctors. There aren't any real answers. And you're wondering how long it's going to last. When will my joblessness be over? I have unemployment, and it's nice, but it's not enough. I'm not sure how much longer I can keep going and pay all my bills. When will my singleness be over? And you're counting the days. Another calendar year flips to 2021 and you still don't have that special person in your life, when, God, when will you meet that need in my life? When will my loneliness be over? When will I stop having to be by myself? When will I be able to share life with someone else? When will I be able to start the family that I long to do? See, when will, and we don't ask this one, when will my sinlessness be over? The meaning of Christmas is that Jesus is our greatest and our only hope, our only hope. So our text answers that question this way. How is Jesus Christ our only and our greatest hope? Well, it's, it's two things. 
And I'll unpack them just briefly, both of them today. Number one, Jesus gives us hope because of who he is, number one. And number two, because of what he did. Let's look at them one at a time. Again, looking in verses six and seven today. Every birth announcement that I've ever seen um, in the last number of years has two things on it. And God's does too. It always talks about the baby's gender and then the baby's name. And so Isaiah says in verse 6, To us a child is born. Unto us, see, there's the gender. A son is given. But when God says that, he is saying much more than just the fact that Jesus is going to be a baby boy. What he's saying is, is that the child that's going to be born is a human See, Jesus is human. He is one of us. There is hope in his humanity. There's hope in his humanity. The doctrine of the incarnation means this, that Jesus is fully human. Fully human. The incarnation means that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Not just over us, not just out there, but God is with us. He has taken on flesh. He has become one of us. And if you let that truth, the truth of the teaching of the incarnation, settle into your mind and heart, you'll understand why it is the universe-splitting, the history-altering, life-transforming, paradigm-shattering event of all of human history that God became a man. Let me say to you on Christmas Sunday, for those of you who are Christians, what difference does the incarnation make in my life every day? There's a scripture, in fact, two verses in the book of Hebrews, speaks of the incarnation this way for us as believers. It says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. The NIV translates it, fully human in every way. Why was it important that God become a man, take on flesh? Why was, why was it important that he had to be made like us in every way? Well, the next verse explains it. Because he himself has suffered being tempted, or tested is the word. Because he's done that as a human, he is able to help those who are being tempted or tested. Think back to the last time that you really went through a difficult time in your life, when you were suffering, when you were undergoing pain of physical nature, of emotional nature, relational difficulties. Think about it. It, it, it. When those difficult times come, we often feel very, very alone by ourselves. People are around us and they do their best often to express their sympathy, but in the end, it really doesn't satisfy the help that we're looking for. But then you meet someone. You meet someone who has gone through exactly the same thing that you have. They know what you've been through. You know, when I, my mom got Alzheimer's and she was losing her memory and more and more things she couldn't do and my dad was having to take more responsibilities and he was, you know, older himself and all that she was going to. And I'd call her on the phone and she couldn't remember me. And I remember the time where she stopped making real full sentences anymore. It's difficult until I was able to talk with someone whose mom had Alzheimer's. Someone else who realized and took care of their mom and visited them and went through the difficulty of seeing the, rem- the drastic changes that take place in their life. I-, I remember when my dad passed away just a few months before my mom and I remember thinking about being in a world where your parent isn't there, much like Dave 
has thought about recently himself. And it's not until you talk to someone whose parent has passed away and you can pour out your heart to them and you can cry with them and they can comfort you in a way that nobody else has. And the reason is, is because they've gone through the same thing. See, that's what the incarnation means. The incarnation means that God himself has suffered, but he's triumphed over it. It means that he has infinite power to comfort you because he has gone through the same thing that you have. And the incarnation makes Jesus unlike any other God of any other faith. All the other gods are proposed gods. See, they don't come and identify with their people. They stay aloof from human problems. They stay aloof from this world. They don't get into suffering. But our God has. When Jesus came at Christmas into the world, he came and he suffered. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be denied. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by his very best friends. He knows what it's like to be forsaken by a parent, if I can say. He knows what it's like to face the pain and agony of death. He knows what it's like to have the pain of suffering. See, he has not just shouted into your darkness. He has walked in your darkness. And can I say, so much more than you and I ever have. And he has the power to bring you out of that darkness. So why did God do this? Why did he become a human? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Not just as Christians can we celebrate the incarnation, but can I speak to you this morning? If you're not a Christian, you're thinking about being a Christian, you're not sure where you stand, can I tell you? The reason why Jesus came into this world as a human being is so that you and I could have a personal relationship with him. If you read carefully throughout the Old Testament, God cannot be approached. He is so holy, you can't really get close to him. And so he is, his manifestation often is on the top of Mount Sinai and it's darkness and lightning and thunder and he appears to the, as a pillar of fire and God is unapproachable. He's so holy. We can't really be with him. But in Jesus Christ, Isaiah says, in Jesus Christ, we have God who has become a child. This child, this son, means this. God has become touchable. God has become approachable. God has become vulnerable. That he actually can feel what you feel and hurt like you hurt. Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, allows us to meet God and know him personally. When God shows up in Jesus, he's a baby, not a pillar of fire. And the question is why? Here's why. Because he didn't come to condemn the world, John 3. He came to save the world, to pay the penalty for our sins, to take away the barriers between you and God so that you wouldn't be separated from him anymore. He, he came to shine light into your darkness. He came to feel your pain and to take your pain. And more importantly, he came to bear your sins so that you could be forgiven. You say, Pastor Walker, hey, I thought you said that Jesus could overcome my illness and my joblessness and my loneliness and my singleness. I, I did say that, and he can. But first, first, he has to overcome your sinlessness, your sinfulness. 
Why? Because you have a deeper problem, and Israel had a deeper problem than the Assyrians and the Romans. It was their sinfulness. And the root of all of our other problems, what stands at the bottom of why problems even exist, is because of our sinlessness. And it's not until we first Not until we first admit that we are a sinner, that we are helpless and hopeless apart from Christ. Can we know that triumph in our lives? See, Christmas means that hope has come into the world. And for you to have that hope, first you have to say this, as a sinner, I am morally helpless and hopeless. I am relationally helpless and hopeless. I am emotionally helpless and hopeless. Jesus came to take away our sins. In the context of Isaiah 9, in verse 4, it says, and it uses this metaphor, that it says that the staff will be on the shoulder. In other words, when we are oppressed and enslaved like they were from Assyria, see, we are oppressed and we carry that weight on our shoulder. But you notice that when Jesus comes into the world, what he will do? And in chapter 9, in verse 6, it says that the government will be on his shoulder. And and here's Christmas. Christmas means all the sin that you have, all the problems that you have that are on your shoulders, burdening you, weighing you down. See, Christmas means he's taken them off your shoulders and put them on Jesus' shoulders. It says there will be on, the government will be on his shoulder. And what it means back in that day is you had the insignia on your uniform as the king. When you went out to battle, you had a, a title on here. And it meant that you were king. And it showed on your shoulder. And Jesus says, listen, I, can, I came to shoulder your sin. All of your problems. But first and foremost, your sin. I came to take them on myself. Isaiah also prophesied this in chapter 53. That he would be, bear our griefs. He put them on his shoulders. He'd carry our sorrows upon him. Upon him was the chastisement of our peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. See, that's who he is. And who he is, the incarnate son of God. The fact that he is human, it gives us hope. But see, birth announcements don't just have gender mentioned. They have names mentioned. And every birth announcement has the name of a baby boy or or a baby girl. In this case, God does the same. But again, it's unique because it's God's birth announcement. And it doesn't just have one name for Jesus. It has four of them. And we all probably could say them from memory by heart. But what you may not know about them is the everlasting Father, the mighty God, the wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace. Those are all Old Testament names for God. So when God says, this is my son, let me tell you his name on the birth announcement. He wants everybody to know that my son is just not another human being. My son is equal to me. He is coterminous. He is co equal with the Father. He is God. See, there is hope in Jesus's humanity, but there's also hope in that he is deity. He is like us, and that gives us hope. But let me tell you, if that's all there was, it wouldn't be an everlasting hope. There's hope that he is like us, and there's hope that he is not like us. And in Jesus, we have both. His humanity and his deity See, he is not limited in the ways that he can help us. He is not limited in the way that he can save us. Because he is God-man, he can do both. And that's why the names are given to him. And in the ancient Near East, when a 
king ascended and sat on the throne, they would often give titles to him. And so wonderful counselor, those are not just names like we would use names. They are titles. They are descriptions of his character. It just tells us who he really is. And that's who Jesus is. See, who he is gives us hope. Who is he? Well, he's wonderful counselor. And we don't use, the Bible doesn't use the word wonderful. That was a wonderful, you know, pizza. No, wonderful means, in Isaiah 28, 29, he is wonderful in counsel, excellent in wisdom. Wonderful means it's full of wonder. It means special revelation, or many times God's power, his wonder-working power. What it means is God has supernatural power. Jesus is going to come, and he has God's power. Amazing the way this is used in the Old Testament. Listen to this. Genesis 18, 14, Sarah's standing at the door when Abraham gets the promise that they're going to have a child, and she's going to be 90 years old, and she laughs, and God says, I heard you laugh, and she tries to deny it. And you remember what God says to her? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And you know what the word hard is? Same word, wonderful. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? In other words, is there anything that God's power can't do, including having a 90-year-old woman have a baby? God says, never think that I don't have the wonder to do it. It's also used in Psalm 139 and verse 6. When the psalmist looks at his life, and he looks at all the things that God did to create him and to make him, here's what his conclusion is. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. In other words, God, when I consider just the miraculous power that you had to put my body together and to make me a human being, he says, it's overwhelming to me. God, your wonders are incredible. Manoah, who was Samson's father, the angel comes down from heaven and goes up from, to heaven in a fire. And before he leaves Manoah says, but can I ask your name? And the angel of the Lord says, why do you ask my name? Seeing that it is wonderful. In other words, it's supernatural. You can't ask my name because God's name is above all names and God is above everyone. And so when God comes into your life and we find out the baby's name, you know what he is? Wonderful counselor. He has the power. Do you hear me? He has the power to address every issue, every problem, every trial, every temptation, every difficulty that you're facing this morning if you have a personal relationship with him. But he's not just wonderful, he's the wonderful counselor. And the word means in Hebrew, the one who plans. See, God has not only the power to handle your life, he has designed your life. He's planned it out and he has the wisdom if you'll let him teach you how to live your life the way he wants to every day. See, every battle you face, he has the right, the winning strategy. Every problem, he has the answer to it. God is the wonderful counselor, but that's only one of his names. He's also the mighty God. Isaiah ten twenty one says, a remnant will return from Israel to the mighty God. Every single time that the word El Gabor in Hebrew is used in the Old Testament, it always refers to deity. And every here's what God wants you to know, that my son has all power and he's the mighty God. Maybe even a better translation would be the mighty warrior God. See, I don't know what battles you face at Christmas and the struggles that you're going through, but I can tell you this, if you have Jesus in your life, if Emmanuel dwells in you and with you, can I tell you, he is the mighty God. Jesus said, last word before he went to heaven, all authority, all authority, Authority is given to me in heaven and earth. He has 
God's might. He is the warrior. He's never faced defeat. He's never lost a battle. There is no foe that can stand before Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Thirdly, he is the everlasting father, literally the father of perpetuity, the father of the years, the father of the ages. And it's strange and it's kind of baffled commentators through the year how Jesus could be God's son, but also be called father. And the answer is because Jesus is equal with the father and the express image of the father that he can share in his titles. Jesus said this in John 10, I and my father are one. Jesus has all the characteristics and trait of a father. And can I tell you, and it's easy to lose the sight of this, he is El Gabor, he is the mighty God, he is the supernatural counselor, and he has all this power and might, and he seems so transcendent. But when he comes to you in your problems, can I tell you that he's very tender? The kindness of a father. And when you need someone to put their arm around you and encourage you and not only do the things you need them to do, but say the right words, he's there. For you. And maybe you didn't get that from your father, but from your heavenly father, he is there and he can handle anyone and anything. And he can take it all, which brings me to the last name, and he can make it turn out exactly how he planned it to in his wisdom because he's the prince of peace. Literally, the one who ensures the blessings of peace. Again, a military term. In other words, he can take all of your struggles, all your conflicts, all your battles, all your fights, all the things that you seem to be defeated by, he can take them all and he can turn them into blessings. And the Bible says that his kind of peace will be established and the increase of his kingdom and his government will never end. See, isn't that what you're looking for in the tunnel that you face? Isn't that what you're hoping for to find this Christmas? Can I tell you this? You won't find it under the tree. You won't find that kind of hope. You won't find that kind of peace under the tree. Jesus warned of that in John's gospel when he told his disciples before he died that he leaves his peace with us, not the peace that the world gives. The world gives fleeting peace, temporal peace, Peace in something outside you, exterior to you. Something that you can find or you can buy or you can manage. That's not the peace that Jesus offers. Isaiah 53, 5 says this. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Listen, and by his wounds we are healed. Did you see what he says? By his wounds, here's what it means. If you want hope and you want peace, you can't bring it to yourself. You can't get it yourself. Isaiah needed to tell Israel this. In your darkest times, in your most difficult times, God has brought a glorious future to bear on them. But that future isn't in Israel, it's in God. It's in what God will do in Israel. And no matter how bad the darkness, no matter how difficult your circumstances and situations are, here's what God says. There is hope in them because he hasn't abandoned us. Instead, he has sent his son, the Lord Jesus. The verse, the last verse of our text, verse 7, ends with this little phrase. And you might think it's a difficult one or an unusual one, but it's the bookend of our whole text Remember in chapter 8, verse 18 
And now this, he says, in both of them, it frames this passage. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. That's it, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. See, here's what God says. I'm going to fight your battles. But here's the thing, as it was in Israel's history so many times. You know how the battle over your sin will be accomplished? I'm going to do it. The zeal of the Lord will do this. God wants Israel to know, see, when you get the victory and when you win and when you have the triumph and you experience that, it will not be because of anything you do. It will be all of grace, all of grace. God will have accomplished it. And that's what you and I need. We cannot heal ourselves. It's not our wounds, it's his. And he says that his kingdom will be established with justice and righteousness. See, Christmas means that there's hope, but you know how you get the hope? Not through self-salvation, but God's salvation. It's not offering your inferior righteousness up to God, but his perfect righteousness coming from heaven down to you. That's what he's asking. That's what he's offering. See, it's not only who he is, it's what he did. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He bore the chastisement of our peace. And in his death, burial, and resurrection, he offers hope, hope that will endure. You know, they have now that the vaccine is out, some people are taking it, and they feel pretty positive about it because some of the vaccines are 95% efficient. And that's pretty good for a vaccine, I'm told. But there's still 5% out there and you may have to get a second one. And now they're having people who have repercussions from taking it. Can I tell you this? You need better than that when it comes to your salvation. See, the, the salvation that Jesus brings, the peace that he offers, the hope that he gives, it's not 95% efficient. It's 100% efficient. And there are repercussions, but can I tell you this? They are all good. They are all good. They will change your life and how you face and how you go through every single problem. But you cannot earn this victory vaccine yourself. It only comes through Jesus Christ. And what he, the Lord of hosts, he will do this. Have you ever come to the place that you recognize that you are a sinner and you need a savior and Jesus is your only hope your only hope if you haven't you can do that today you can come and say god i recognize who jesus is he is your son he is the son of god equal with god and because he's a man and because he's god he's the only one that could take care of my real problem my greatest problem my deepest need and that is forgiveness so that i can have a personal relationship with you if you've never come to trust in him see maybe you're banking on maybe you're trusting in false hopes hollow hopes the word hollow means to be filled with space empty space without significance and, and maybe you're here and you think that the hope that you're looking for can be found at the end of a needle or the bottom of a bottle or perhaps in someone else's arms. It cannot be. It cannot be found in a bigger bank account in a more secure financial situation. It cannot be found in being relieved from the pain of your illnesses. It cannot be found in emotional stability. None of those things can give it to you. See, Jesus is our only and our greatest hope. The question is, is he your hope? 
Let's close in prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I obviously can't see those of you who are live streaming at home, but for those of you who are here in person, with no one looking around, I hope you've heard the birth announcement today. See, a child is born. A son has been given. And it's Jesus. Hope has a name. And it's Jesus. Do you know him? Have you ever come and repented of your sins and offered your whole life to him? And say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And I can't be good enough to get to heaven. It's not about my religiousness or my efforts or my self-righteousness or keeping the law or being baptized or trying to be as good as I possibly can. No, I, I recognize that that's my righteousness. What I need is your righteousness. And that's why Jesus died. That's why he came. If you could get to heaven on your own, he would have stayed in heaven and just shouted down, be good as you can. But we can't be good enough. He had to come and be our goodness, take our place, die in our behalf so that he could carry and shoulder our sins. Have you ever let him do that for you? That's the first thing you need to do. If you've never done that, you can pray right there where you are in your seat this morning. Father, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And King Jesus is the only one that can forgive sins. And I know what he did and I know who he is. And I put my faith and trust in him And you can ask him to forgive your sins and come into your life and be your Lord and your Savior. Would you do that in these moments before we pray? If that's been the case, and for the very first time you've trusted Jesus this morning, would you let us rejoice with you? I mean, after the service is over, would you come forward, let me pray with you? And today, you know what? It's not just Jesus' birth announcement. It can be yours, that you've been born again. You can say that today was the day that I was born into the family of God. And we can celebrate your birth as well, your spiritual birth, as you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Father, thank you for meeting with us today. Thank you for this ancient truth that couldn't be any more real and relevant in the day in which we live. Thank you for sending your son, the God-man, who has given us hope. Not I hope so kind of hope, a certain hope, a real hope that we can have a relationship with you by faith. I pray for those who are listening or watching today that they might have come to know that hope in Jesus, to put their faith and trust in him. And if they have, Father, may we have them share that with us that we might rejoice with them and encourage them in their newfound faith. And for those who are still contemplating it, may you allow your spirit to continue to work in their hearts that today might be the day they are also born into the family of God. And we'll thank you for that rich blessing, for it's in Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen.